Hi, everyone. This is Ken Jacobson, and I want to welcome you to this episode of Top Docs. Today, I'm talking to Benoit Branger, the director of the Caviar Connection. This conversation is another in our series of interviews with filmmakers whose documentaries will be screening at the Palm Springs International Film Festival from January 6th to the 17th. We're very pleased to be partnering with the festival. The Caviar Connection tracks a group of fearless investigative journalists who expose corruption at the highest government levels in the countries in the Caspian Sea region, focusing most closely on the kleptocratic regime of Azerbaijan. It also shows the key role that Western democracies play in giving legitimacy to these regimes. Benoit Branger is an investigative journalist and award-winning documentary filmmaker based in Paris. The Caviar Connection had its world premiere at this year's Hot Docs Documentary Film Festival in Toronto. Since then, it has been screened at the Raindance Festival in the UK, the Bergen International Film Festival in Norway, and at festivals in Spain, Germany, and Poland. It will also be in competition at the leading French documentary film festival in France in January. It had its US premiere at Doc NYC and won the jury prize at the Doc Film Fest in Bulgaria. It's been aired on TV throughout Europe. Benoit's previous films include 2019's Food for Change, The Men Who Stole the World, which came out in 2018, and The Carnivore's Dilemma, also 2018. It was really interesting to see this film and then talk to Benoit. I really didn't know anything about caviar diplomacy or much at all about the current government of Azerbaijan and its kleptocracy. I was really impressed in the film with Benoit's ability to break down what could have been a confusing story, a dry story, and really make it a very compelling drama. His storytelling, it's quite visual, it's quite dramatic in terms of the soundtrack. Things are always kept moving, but never to the extent that you feel lost in the details. I would love to see more films like this one that talk about the West's complicity in these events and not just point fingers at these corrupt regimes around the world. Benoit says, without our corruption and without celebrities from the West coming over to these countries and taking huge sums of money to essentially bless these governments and say what they're doing is okay, that it wouldn't be so easy for these governments to get away with what they're doing. So I think audiences in Palm Springs will really find this a revelatory film, an engaging film, and an important film. As I mentioned, screenings of The Caviar Connection will take place in person at the Palm Springs International Film Festival in beautiful Palm Springs, California. You have three chances to see the film on January 8th at 11.15 a.m. at the Regal Cinemas, on January 12th at the Camelot Theaters at 8 p.m., and on January 16th at the Regal Cinemas at 3.30 p.m. Check out psfilmfest.org for more information and for the complete film lineup, and we'll see you at the festival. Without further ado, here is my conversation with director Benoit Branger, the director of the Caviar Connection. Hi, everyone. I'm Ken Jacobson. I want to welcome you to Top Docs, and I'm very pleased to be with 
director Benoit Branger, director of the Caviar Connection. Welcome, Benoit. Thanks for having me. Benoit, why do you make documentary films? I have a journalistic background. I was a, before a reporter, a journalist for the breaking news when I was in my 20s. And then I have been a correspondent in Pakistan and Azerbaijan in 2009, 2010. I'm coming from TV, but I always like, of course, the telling stories with image pictures. And I'm also, uh, also like the cinematic side of the documentaries. In my career now, I'm considering myself maybe more like a documentary maker than a journalist, even if my documentaries are have a journalistic point. This one, of course, is an investigation, but it's mostly following people who, who have done this investigation. And I'm just trying to tell their story. I'm trying to focus on stories that matter, that are very important with important issues for society, for democracy. I was part of the Panama Papers investigation, so tax evasion, white collar criminals, or of course, environmental issues are the kind of subjects that are interesting me. I think it would be helpful for our audience for you to just give a brief description of what is caviar diplomacy. Caviar is a symbol. In the past, when people were going to countries around the Caspian Sea, like Azerbaijan or Kazakhstan, people were offering them a caviar box because it's, of course, typical from them there. And today it's the symbol that show and that illustrates the way that those countries are corrupting former politicians or stars by giving them money. So at the beginning, it was caviar, and they are always the caviar. When people are coming to these countries, are going to very nice hotel paid with uh, petrol oil because there are a lot of oil and petrol in the Caspian Sea. But this wealth coming from the oil is not benefiting to the citizen of those countries, but to the ruling elites. And this wealth is used to corrupt politicians to try to improve relations with the, the West and to do business with the West to have an, in, quite kind of importance in the eye of the West and especially with the European Union, but with United States also. And we call that the caviar diplomacy. So it's a way of doing diplomacy, but by bribing people with caviar, but also with money. Is there something distinctive, would you say, about these dictatorships in Central Asia around the Caspian Sea compared to others in the world? Yeah, they are coming from USSR. They are post-Soviet countries. And there are some patterns between those countries. The way they, 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 they corrupt people, and I think it's coming from uh, USSR. Before it was people coming from Moscow to those republics and very well received with the caviar, of course, but also carpet, very expensive carpet, you know, because it's also something traditional there. And so the corruption, I guess, it's, it's coming from USSR. It was very common also. And uh, so they apply now the same pattern, you know, and, and you can find also, for example, people who are trying to uncover this corruption. There are certain, maybe we'll talk about that, and targets 
of those uh, governments. Uh, another pattern that you find in uh, those former uh, Soviet countries is the compromise. It's a way to target uh, the brave people who are trying to uncover the truth in uh, those countries. Compromise is a way to blackmail people. It's something that happens a lot in those countries, but also in Russia. One of the courageous journalists that you focus on, really the main character in the film, is Khadija Ismailova, the crusading Azerbaijani investigative journalist who's delving into corruption at the highest levels of her government. When did you first become aware of Khadija's story and her reporting? Back in 2012-2013, I was working for an investigative program in France. We were interested in the relationship between France and our former president and Azerbaijan, because he went there to do some business trip. We did an investigation about the relationship between our country and Azerbaijan. It's a country where the human rights are not very respected, of course. There is no freedom of speech. The wealth is kept by the, the powerful people, and the people of the countries are suffering. There is like energy for the poor, lack of money, of course, like lack of food. And so it was a problem when our countries, I think, made the deals and important business with those countries without mentioning or even taking care of the human rights side. We did an investigation and we discovered the story, which is amazing. At that time, she was a, a fixer. She helped us to did the, the story and she, she was not so well known because now if you are in the investigative journalistic field, she is very well known and she had a lot of awards for her job. But at, at that time, she was a fixer. And after this in investigation we did, she had been theater blackmailed, she had been to jail, and at the same time, she continued to uncover the, the truth, whatever the risk and whatever she endured. And three years later, four years later, a lot of new facts were uncovered. We discovered a big political scandal in the heart of Europe, the Council of Europe, but also the European Parliament, and also many politicians from Italia, from Spain, from Germany, from France uh, were paid, literally, they received cash from not the government, but people close to the ruling elite and to the regime in Azerbaijan. It, it, it was bribes, definitely. And she helped to uncover that. One of the key aspects of caviar diplomacy is that it depends on the Western democracies giving legitimacy to these dictatorships. And one of the ways they grant this legitimacy is through regional government member organizations like the Council of Europe. Americans, I think, are, are certainly familiar with the EU and to a lesser extent with the European Parliament, but very few people here probably know what the Council of Europe is or does. Can you give us a very quick rundown of on who's in the Council and what its mission is? Yeah, the Council of Europe is a body very important for democracy. And if you go back to the end of the Second World War and the Cold War, there was a need to try to improve democracies in Europe and in the east of Europe. And so the Council of Europe is a body with parliamentary elected people from 
different countries in Europe, like France, like Germany, like Spain, like Italy, like UK, but also from the country at the east of Europe, like uh, Russia, like Azerbaijan, like Armenia. It's a body that try to improve democracy in those countries. And there is the European Convention, which is a convention related to human rights. It, it depends on the, also on the Council of Europe. Just to, to, to sum up, because it's not so easy, it's a very important body who try to improve democracy. And if you are part of the Council of Europe, like Azerbaijan, like Russia, like Armenia or Turkey, you need to respect some rules regarding democracies. And if you don't respect those rules, like if you have political prisoner, you are not allowed to be in this Council of Europe. And if you are not in the Council of Europe, well, you are not really a democracy anymore. And it maybe will be more complicated if you want to do business with the West. So it's very important for those countries to be part of the Council of Europe and to be considered like kind of democracy. That was an important part of this documentary because the corruption took place in the art of the Council of Europe, which is a symbol of democracy and which is very important for the people who, who trust and who believe in the European values and, and Western values. I think certainly it gave me a, a bit of a jolt to see these politicians from countries like Italy, Germany, France, who are accepting these bribes and making this kind of corruption possible. A key to uncovering all of this seems to, and not just in this case, but in others, center around banking records. You know, there's the Panama Papers, of course, which you were a part of reporting on, and congratulations to you on that, by the way, tremendous project. And then there are other banking hacks that are covered in the film. How important is this kind of investigative reporting and exposing the corruption networks and links that go back to figures like the president of Azerbaijan and Putin, for that matter? Yeah, definitely. It's, it's very important. It's a totally new way of doing journalism. And it's quite new. Things maybe 10 years, there are those kind of leaks, like uh, Swiss leaks, the Panama Papers, of course, the Pandora Papers after that. It's something I would like to underline in this documentary. You will see in this documentary how the brave journalists in those difficult countries work with other journalists in France, in in UK, in the United States, to be more powerful, because together we are more powerful. Together you are protected also, more protected. It's not always very efficient, but still it's, it's better that if you are alone in those dangerous country working as an investigative reporter. It's very important because this kind of collaboration helps really to work on very difficult, complex topics. When I was part of the Panama Papers, there was some case in France, some case in in United States, some case in Russia, in a lot of countries, and we were all chatting on a secure and an encrypted chat to share our information to understand the big complex scheme of the corruption and tax evasion and the impact because everybody is breaking the, the information, the news at the same time. It's very important and, and it makes a lot of noise around the world when all those journalists are working together. And for my documentaries, we discovered the corruption uh, thanks to a leak 
coming from a resale broker with banking records that shows that there were transfer money coming from Azerbaijan to European politician were in in the parliament in Germany, in Italy, were very respected, sometimes important politicians in the big political party, like the party of Angela Merkel. And through those banking records, we discovered the transfer money. It was going through offshore accounts and something definitely they didn't want that people know about it. It's thanks to this collaboration that people from the OCCRP which is an organization of investigative journalists fighting corruption, uh, especially in the Eastern Europe, in Asia, in Russia also. And thanks to the work of the, uh, the OCCRP and journalists in Azerbaijan, like uh, Khadija Ismailova, that we were able to find the truth, thanks to this collaboration. So it was important for me to, to show in this documentary, which is kind of like of a thriller when we can follow the work of uh, the journalist in Romania, in Bosnia, working with this woman in Azerbaijan. All together, they succeed in uh, revealing this big corruption scandal. The film is like a political thriller. This is a very complex story. It involves lots of moving parts. You need to connect a bunch of dots, but I never felt lost or confused and it's quite gripping. Can you tell us about your approach to visual storytelling and how you go about creatively putting together a film that is easy to follow and quite engaging at the same time? It's the big challenge, I think. As I said, I'm coming from a journalistic background, investigative background, and so always what I want is to talk to the largest audience, what, what I can do. It's very important for me that people know about those issues and to try to improve things. The real goal is to have an impact and to change things. So for that, you have to reach a lot of people and you have to engage your audience. I think that going through personal stories like the people who are fighting against corruption, against dictatorship, it's quite universal. There are people all around the world fighting for the truth in Hong Kong, in South America, in Asia, in Myanmar. It's quite a, a universal fight. And I try to find characters that you can follow and their stories are just amazing most of the time, you know. You don't need to watch a, a, a fictional movie. A lot of time, the reality is it's incredible and, and more incredible than, than a movie. And thus, character in, in the country, the, their life is like in a movie. So I think that by following the characters, you, you can engage the, the audience. And it's very important to be part of their story, to listen to them, to go in the detail of what happened to them. Like Khadija Ismailova, when she had been targeted by the government and people came to her apartment to put video cameras in her bedroom and film the intimate relation between her and her former boyfriend, but also there were cameras in the bathroom, in the toilets, and, and then they threatened her to release those images on the internet if she was not stopping the fight and uh, her investigations. And, and when we go through this kind of thing, you can be very engaged because it's incredible moments and incredible uh, scene, I think. And then there is a way to tell the story and you have to find the good people to explain things that are very complex. 
like just understanding what is the Council of Europe. <laughs> it was even hard for me to explain to you. So you really need to cast the good people to explain to a large audience who really don't know about the subject, because even in France, not a lot of people understand the importance of the Council of Europe and how it is important to defend European values and the democratic values. I try to do character-driven documentary, even if it's not cinema verité, which is not always easy. One of the really compelling characters in the film is the Azerbaijani journalist and, and exile, Emin Hesanov. In one scene, we see him holding a rally outside the Council of Europe Assembly building. I think that's in 2020. He's calling for an end to bribes in the council. How did you meet Eamon? And was it through his activism or his journalism? We spent a lot of time together by phone. We met a lot of time. He is living part in USA, part in Switzerland, because he's, he's a refugee in Switzerland. The, the first time I heard about him, he, he was going to a big, important rally in Switzerland with a lot of aid of states. And it was trying to meet the important people who were meeting them just to, to lobby for human rights in Azerbaijan. He is very quite active and is always in the Council of Europe. He was in Sweden a few days ago. He always tried to convince politicians, NGO, to fight to his country. It's those people really, they lost a lot in their fight. They lost sometimes their, of course, their country, because Emil will not will be able to go back to Azerbaijan in, in his life, I think. But also their relatives, they can see each other. They are totally dedicated to, to the cause. And Emil is one of them, definitely. So it was very impressive to be along with those characters and those people. And I really want to pay tribute to them in this documentary. You know, we are in a time where sometimes it's very difficult to hope. Hope is, uh, is something very difficult today because of climate change, because you have Trump, you have the next presidential election in France, the far right is very up in the ratings now. We have Russia, it's becoming a nightmare for journalists and for people who are defending freedom and other countries. It's not very good time for democracy, for the planet. So we really need to realize that there is still hope. And through those characters, I mean, what people are, capable of doing to fight for the good things, it helps to find hope in the future. And there is still hope, I think. I want to ask you about Arif Mamadov, the high-level Azerbaijani Council of Europe official who becomes a whistleblower against the regime. That seems like a, a very unusual thing to have such a high-level official become a whistleblower. Why do you think he did that at great risk to himself and his family? Arif Mamadov was the former ambassador of Azerbaijan in the Council of Europe, but also in the European Union. He was very close to the regime and he met with President Aliyev, the president of Azerbaijan, which, which is at the center of the story a lot of time. It's hard to know why did he decide to change to... Uh, he said to me that he, he always tried to do the best for his country. One time he realized that he would not be able to let his children live in a country where there is so much corruption and danger and he was not able to be part anymore of this regime so he decided to turn. I think at the beginning it was very not so important critics about the, the regime, something very light and as soon as he started to say something and to speak up 
there was a lot of threat and he was becoming the enemy of the states really soon just for not really important uh, revelation he was not talking about the whole scheme and he decided that yeah that he had to tell the the whole truth and that yeah, he has to fight for his country and now he's definitely living in exile and uh, he had to protect his family, and it's not so easy for him. And he also will not be able to, to go back to his motherland. So yeah, it's hard to understand what happened in the mind of those people who know that they would lost everything if they speak up, but they, they do it. Most of the corruption and bribery that you detail in the film relates to the Council of Europe and to specific individual people who are representing their countries in the council. But you also do draw the connection to the United States and at least one foundation in the U.S. that organized one of these delegations to monitor the presidential election in Azerbaijan and received funds to do that and then magically endorsed the elections afterward. How yeah. widespread is this in the United States? Well, I think they, they did the same with the United States, and they continue, I think, to do it. They invite people from the U.S. Senate in the past to monitor the election, and they even try to give them cash when they were there, just like a per diem to enjoy the life, doing their trips to, to Baku. I don't have any proof that American politicians accept the bribe or the, the cash, but at least we know that, I know that the, the Azerbaijani people proposed them. I mean, it's the same pattern in Europe, and they did the same in the United States. I did not investigate it the same way, but definitely there are the same links, the same way of doing they, they finance, they, they paid the foundation in the United States and also lobby firms to send politicians in Azerbaijan, for example. And then they, they monitored the election. And of course, at the end, they said the election was just perfect. So it's exactly the same did with the European politicians. Celebrities play a role here. In the film, we see celebrities like Lady Gaga and Rihanna and Kanye West we're appearing in events like these spectacular new stadium openings and playing concerts and receiving, you know, huge sums of money to do this. And by doing so, they are legitimizing these regimes to some extent. In the last couple of years, I'm curious, as journalists and others have exposed the corruption of these regimes, as well as human rights violations, has there been any kind of blowback against these celebrities or shaming of any kind? Well, where I think on Twitter, on uh, Instagram, maybe some shaming. There were also Sting, who is known for being a guy who respects human rights. But he, he was in uh, Uzbekistan concerts for playing music, and he received a lot of money from this country, which is definitely not a democracy. After that, they said, okay, we didn't know, but they, of course, kept the, the money after that. But so there, there were some shaming, but for example, Jennifer Lopez went to Turkmenistan. It's amazing. It's certainly the worst country in the world after North Korea regarding human rights. And when she went there, she saying for the, the president, she said happy birthday to him. And it was amazing, a big show. And she earned a lot of money. 
with that. And after that, you say, oh, I, I didn't know that Turkmenistan was a bad country, but oh, can you not know that it is a bad country? You just have to go on Google and, and just say Turkmenistan and we'll see that there is no human rights. There is a bit of shaming, but it's it's not enough. It's not enough. And it's very important for those country. But it's not only the stars, the great singers. When you look at the football, for example, the European football competition, like uh, the UEFA champions competition of football in Europe are going to Baku for a big, big match. And also the Formula One. There is a race in Baku because they paid to have those championships in their country and also the Formula One racing in their country because it helped to have a good image to, to say, look, we are like other countries, we are a rich country, we have stars coming to see us. And it's the first layer. When you have this first layer of respectability, after you can invite the politician to come and to continue to say good things about the country, about the regime. It's not the country, the problem. The people are great. The problem is the regime who, ke who keep the money, who keep the power, and who don't help the citizens. You can see that as two layers, the stars, the sports, and, and after that, you have the corruption at highest levels in the politician world. And both are the part of the same caviar diplomacy. A bit of a spoiler alert here for our audience. There are two reports prepared by officials in the Council of Europe on political prisoners in Azerbaijan that are featured in the film. And the response in the Council to the first report represents a real low point, I would say, in the story. But toward the end, there's a turning point. There's an, a new report prepared by a member of parliament in Iceland, who's a member of the Council of Europe, and a rapporteur on political prisoners in Azerbaijan. And the result of the vote in the council is very different and much more encouraging. What was the reason for the change in the council? The first report was in 2013. And it was the fact that this report that said that there were no political prisoner in Azerbaijan, the rejection of the report was really a blow to the Council of Europe it was a, a failure, definitely a failure for the Council of Europe. It's maybe in 2020, I think, that the second report has been adopted. So realize it's seven years to have a new report that says, yes, there are political prisoners definitely in the jail in Azerbaijan. So seven years, but it's seven years of fight. Fight from the citizen from Azerbaijan, helped by journalists outside the country to reveal the corruption in the Council of Europe and the fact that this previous report have been rejected because of corruption, because people have been paid in the Council of Europe to reject the report. And it's only because people fought for this and revealed the truth. And that this documentary, is, it's definitely the story of how people fighting for the truth succeed at the end to have a new report. Of course, this new report is it's not perfect. It's not the end of political prisoner in Azerbaijan, but we can see how it's hard to have a small step. But at the end, still there is improvement. I think that without those revelations, without the big scandal inside the Council of Europe, I think 14 members have been expelled and they are not authorized to come back to the Council of Europe for their own life because of this scandal. Yeah, it has changed because of that. Can you give us an update on Khadija and what she's up to now in terms of personally how she's doing and in terms of her reporting and also the same for Amin? If you see the, the documentary, we'll see that the life of Khadija was not easy because she decided to fight. She could have 
decided to do easy journalism and just have a normal life. But she totally dedicated his, her life for the truth. And she definitely have health issue because of that, because she had been in jail, because she lost her mother and she was not able to be with her because her mother was in Ankara in Turkey when she was ill. And she was not, and, and Hadija was not able to leave the country because she had a travel ban when she left jail. So she was not even able to be with her mother at the end of the life of, of her mother. And, and, and her mother was really important to her. They were living together and they are very close. Today, she, she tried to continue, but it's not so easy for her. She's still in Azerbaijan and she thinks that she had to be there to change the things from the inside. She don't want to leave the country. She really likes her country. She's very patriotic. Life is difficult for her to, today, and she tried to give an um, investigative course to teach investigation to people to continue her fight even after her because she, it's hard for her to continue now. She's very exhausted by all this, this terrible fight. After the documentary, there was a new revelation about the Pegasus project. Pegasus is a spyware. It's coming from an Israeli company, but it has been used by country like Morocco or Azerbaijan or like Hungary to spy on people like journalists or political opponents. And we discovered after the documentary that during the documentary, the phone of uh, Hadija Ismailova had been spied by the regime. So she was one of the main targets, actually. And there was a lot of attack on her phone during the documentary. I don't know if it's related, but what I can say is we discovered that after the, the documentary, she has been part of this new investigation about this Pegasus scandal. Yeah, she still continued to fight. And Emin is still continuing to fight also. As I told you, he was in, in Sudan a few days ago to try to make people aware of the situation in Azerbaijan. His brother actually is in the country. And he, his brother is fighting from inside the country. So they are both acting one from outside the country and one from inside the country. And I think they will fight till the end of their life. Last question for you, which is, what did you personally learn from working on this film that you'd like to share with audiences? It's, it's not a surprise that there are corruption in the country around the Caspian Sea, like Azerbaijan, like Kazakhstan, like Turkmenistan, or even far in the East, Uzbekistan. Of course, we know that already. The real revelation of this documentary is how you can easily buy politicians in Europe and how we are vulnerable in our own institutions, like the European Parliament, but like also the U.S. Senate in America, to this kind of corruption. And we need to be aware of that because democracy is, you always have to fight for democracy. It's not something that you have and you have it forever. It's something quite new in the world. It's maybe not so long time ago that we have this kind of in democracy and this kind of freedom of speech. We really need to defend it. We, we can just say that it's something going far away in those terrible countries that's sad for those people, but what can we do? No, no, no. It's up to us if we want to have our politician and our own institution be a barrier, a frontier, a border against the tyranny, the despotism, and the illiberal democracy that's happened even in, in the rest of Europe now. Is there anyone who contributed to the film that you want to thank? Well, really all the, the people who are 
the journalist or uh, citizen activist or human rights defenders from Azerbaijan fighting from New York and Geneva to make uh, the world know about the real face of the regime in Azerbaijan. Those are very brave people who speak up and who are telling us the truth and without them, this documentary will not have been possible. They are the ones who take the risk to make the, the world know and to try to improve, of course, the situation in their countries, but also in our own democracies. I want to thank you, Benoit, for telling this story and going all the way to the Caspian Sea to remind us of how close to home this story does hit. As you say, we are a vulnerable democracy, and it's important to be reminded of how easily democracy is threatened. So thank you for telling this. This is clearly a story that matters. And it's also just a very engaging and in, in some ways hopeful and inspiring story as well. I want to encourage anybody who's able to come out to the Palm Springs Film Festival to see the film in person on January 8th, 12th, and 16th. Benoit, congratulations on the film, and thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed talking to you. Well, thank you for having me. Do you have a hidden gem, a film that you've seen that you don't think gets the attention that it quite deserves? I have in mind a film that is totally different from my last documentary, but it got a lot of attention. It's the first wave. I saw the first wave because it was in Doc NYC and I was also in Doc NYC with the Caviar Connection. It's really totally different from what I do in a perspective because there is no talking heads, there is no experts. It's only uh, it's character-driven documentary. But what I like with Matthew Eneman is uh, is talking about big issues uh, like with the first wave, of course, the COVID and how we reacted to this pandemic, but through the real life, following the people, and it's incredibly powerful when you can have this kind of documentary, cinema verite, when you don't need the expert to tell you what happened because you are there. So yeah, that's the, the last documentary I've seen and it's very impressive.